I'm Karen. I'm alcoholic. Um, it's my pleasure tonight to introduce our speaker for the weekend, our speaker for tonight, and then our facilitator for the weekend. But I think I'm just doing it for tonight. So we picked him up at the airport yesterday, and um, we're sitting in these really comfortable chairs. And Sheila says, "I think that's him." To this guy that was standing, I said, "No, his pl- plane said it was going to be late. That's not him." Anyways, it wasn't very much later that we heard uh, would. Uh, People pick it up. Peter, please, Peter Martinelli, please show up to the <laughs> number seven. So, like, okay, she was right and I was wrong. But anyways, so then we came outside, um, and it's in its last night was like bitterly cold. And this man, this kind and gentle man, is like frigging cold. <laughs> And he says, he says, sweet Jesus or something. <laughs> sweet Jesus! <laughs> it's really cold. But anyways, it's warmed up today. But, um, you know, I've heard, I've listened to, I like listening to those speaker things. And I've heard Peter talk, tell his story. And um, the thing that I really like about when he shares is he talks about the solution being a, a, of a spiritual Thing and he talks all about the spirit, and he just always warms up my heart when I listen, because that's you know like I really need to hear about spirituality and um, as people journey through. And anyways, that's the solution to the problem. So I'm um, Peter. Come on up and. My name is Peter, recovered alcoholic. Uh, grateful to be alive and sober, and part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, first things first, thanks Sheila and Karen uh, and the rest of you guys for having me up here. Um, it's cold. Uh, we uh, got to visit a town called Kenmore. And um, it looked like a scene out of my cousin Vinny when I hit the town of Kenmore this afternoon. It was a very interesting reaction to me walking around with a cigar. Um, uh, I've been trying to fit in since I got here, and uh, Sheila has made it very easy for me. Um, I've been to Canada a whole bunch of times. I've never been up this way. Uh, this is new territory for me, and uh, I was taken in by uh, the scenery. I was in Arizona last week and around mountains. It was obviously a lot different, but uh, there's something um, spiritual, um, calming, uh, something still, something that resonates uh, at a deep level when you're around this type of environment. Me personally, I, I, I find that sort of tranquility when I'm down at the beach and I watch God show off with waves and, and, um, and, and watching the sun come up early in the morning. Uh, there's something beyond the goings of life that we get to touch in Alcoholics Anonymous. So uh, it's one of those little trips that I'll be able to hold on for, for a while. Um, I'm glad to be here. I'm a recovered alcoholic, and I say recovered because I am. And anything less than that great fact would be falsely humble. And as a recovered member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have a responsibility to uphold the traditions as well as the tradition of Alcoholics Anonymous and to be a member in good standing. And I say recovered because I am. And anything less than that would be falsely humble. I don't say that to separate myself from anyone in this room or anyone in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's just my truth. 
And I'd rather be accused of telling the truth than be accused of telling a lie. It's the first promise in a book that we get. And I've gotten to experience a place called recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body and not experiencing alcoholism while I'm sober in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm looking to get recovered from alcoholism, not to come to meetings just to not drink. Many of us settle for, well, I didn't drink today, and that's good, so I'm looking to recover from drinking. There's a whole lot more that I need to recover from as an alcoholic. The type on page 21. So because of this message that I found in the sacred rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, sponsorship and the fellowship that was a band-aid on an open wound when I got here, little by slowly, by chopping a lot of wood and carrying a lot of water, I'm able to stand in the presence of my Creator and experience truth. And very often we're looking for truth in relationships. We're looking for truth in scenery like I got to experience today. We're looking for truth. We're looking, what we're really looking for is ease and comfort somewhere, and we only experience that in truth. The problem, if you're anything like me, I go down a lot of dark alleyways to experience some sort of utopia. Truth. And the only truth, the only place I can find truth is experiencing oneness with God. He is the truth, or she is the truth, and it is the truth, whatever your God is. But the thing is to get there. There's a lot of pruning of the tree that needs to go on, and many of us will bail. Many of us will look for the instant gratification. Many of us will look, well, I finished my fifth step, where's utopia? And God just has more work to do. But something happens when we bridge that gap and experience oneness without creator truth. We experience sanity. We experience wholeness of mind. We experience, finally experience peace, ease, and comfort. And I only was able to get that in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. My journey in Alcoholics Anonymous, and many of us will identify with this, has been a forward journey backwards. I mean, I've moved through the steps with the guidance of a sponsor because I showed up to Alcoholics Anonymous June 23rd, 1988, completely broken, and I still am broken. And it's only with the touch of the Master's hand that little by solely we get put back together. But as I move through the steps, numerically move through the steps into 10, 11, and 12 and enter the world of the Spirit, what I did in essence was go home. It's a forward journey backwards, back to what the Oxford group talked about is purity, honesty, unselfishness, and love. It's a forward journey backwards. I don't react well to sobriety. I don't react well to being abstinent. What I need to be sober, what I need to be abstinent is God. I have an abnormal reaction, if you will, to abstinence and just going to a meeting being sober because if I'm just doing that, I need something else to fill up the hole in the soul. So what I do is I go on sprees. I go on food sprees. I go on anger sprees. I go on sex sprees. I go on fear sprees. And the thing many of us are doing, even while I'm speaking, are thinking sprees. We're always thinking. Thinking all the time. In fact, if I ask a a drunk a question and they say, let me think about it, I run to the next town because I don't need anything you're thinking about. It is the greatest predator, our own thinking mind. Our big book tells us the main problem for people like us centers in the mind rather than the body. So I'm just curious, how many folks drove here in their car alone. Anyone do that? Anyone driving their car alone? Right. So what I have to offer you is bad news because you're all lying to me. I'm going to tell you why. 
because it's a, play, a program of honesty. But you all just lied to me. Because if you think about the ride over here, or you claim to be in the car alone, my question is this. How many people were you talking to <laughs> that weren't even in the car? <laughs> Anger about things from five or ten years ago. Looking to, for the future Rex at this conference this weekend. Right? Who's going to be there? Who's this guy coming in to speak? I don't like half the people there, but my sponsor told me to go. And it goes on and on and on. I should be making more money. I should have a better job. I should be somebody. I should be a circuit speaker. And then when you walk into the meeting, they say, how you doing? You start oming. I'm Moses. Everything's good. <laughs> You know how we do that walking to me? How you doing? I'm, I'm so spiritual. I'm absolutely wonderful. In fact, I'm the most humble guy in the room. Let me tell you all about it. And, uh, and then as soon as we leave here and get back in the car, you know who's waiting in the car? Those 45 other people that you were arguing with on the way over here. That's why when you ask an alcoholic how you doing, we always say, I'm, I'm so tired because we're talking to everyone. All the time. So we have this mind problem. And the, sad, the, the scary thing and the sad thing about this mind problem is that what it tells us to do, we do. It is Buddha, Allah, and Jesus roll into one, our mind. It's the only thing that tells me to go drink and I obey it. It's the only t- thing that tells me to practice infidelity and I obey it. It's the only thing that tells me it's okay to do this and I obey it. But when I get the sound of God or the voice of God, the thunder of signs that cuts through everything, I doubt it. I'm completely upside down. And because I'm sober a handful of years in the sacred fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous, it doesn't mean I'm much better unless I follow the instructions that are laid out in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, get on a soapbox for a minute. I go to too many meetings where if you bring in a big book... We have folks who say you're going to talk about that thing now, you're going to bring that book in here. That's not even AA. You don't even need the book. You don't need the steps. And why are you starting trouble for? And my question to some of those folks, and I don't know if they're here tonight, if they are, great, welcome. Are you in for a rude awakening? (laughs) My question is this. Bill, in around the first 40, put that book together. Bill spearheading it. As a manual for someone like me to get well, to get recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. So when a new guy walks in, or perhaps an old-timer walks in, armed with the facts in a big book under his haram, and I give them some grief about it, what I'm actually doing, while I'm claiming to be a member in good standing of this fellowship, what I'm actually doing is telling Bill and the first 40 that they didn't know what they were doing, but I do. We talk about the boldness and the arrogance of us. And I think that is in capital letters and neon lights when we do things like that. Because what we do, in essence, is kill another drunk when we deny them the solution that's laid out in the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Now this weekend, i I, got to tell you, I'm not here to to, uh, split the room. And this isn't about right and wrong. I know people who do these weekends and, you know, it's right and wrong, us against them. That's somebody else's talk. What I'd like to do this weekend is raise the level of awareness, which is the greatest agent for change. 
And perhaps when we're talking about inventory and you're sitting back and saying, well, I never did inventory, I don't do inventory, and you're disturbed by it, good, because the ego just got hit. And perhaps it will motivate us to do some inventory. Perhaps we don't have a prayer life or a life of meditation. Perhaps I'm sitting around in meetings for a long time and I'm just dying on the inside. And, and, and we get disturbed when you hear a, a workshop like this. This doesn't mean you're better than or less than. It just means God has put a little light where it's really dark. And one of the things we need to do is come into the light. We have the shadow of the soul, the deep, dark parts of the soul that we're not even aware it's working on us and it manifests in thought, word, and deed. And the only way we can get in there and reveal it is by a surrender to this power called God with all the mechanics, with the inventory, with the sponsor, and all the amends and all the things we get to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. But it is only with His ability, if you will, his insight, his healing, that we get to heal from that. Because what we could do, and I'm one of them, we could walk around in Alcoholics Anonymous for years, and we're put back together, but we just know deep down inside something's not right. I still got fear pushing me. I still have doubt pushing me. I'm still insecure, and that's pushing me. I'm never right in a relationship. I still have thoughts that are really unspiritual, and sometimes I fall prey to them. That's coming from a place that I don't even know how to get to, but it needs to be brought into the light. There's a, there's a quote from scripture. I am weak flesh born unto the, the slavery of sin. I'm broken. Alcoholics Anonymous is a room full of broken toys. All the toys on Christmas morning that are missing parts and batteries and they just, you put them in a closet to return another time and your kids are 25, you still got the Tonka toys in the back of the closet that don't work. That's us. I can't do life on life's terms. And I never offer anyone do life on life's terms. I need a drink to do life on life's terms. I need stuff. I need external things to make me feel okay to do life on life's terms because of my brokenness. How I interpret the world. How I interpret what you're saying to me. How I hear, see, and speak is coming from a, 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 a place of illness or disease and discomfort rather than a spiritual or divine place. And only God can heal that. Trying to do life on life's terms. If I have a really good job, I need your job because you make more money than me, so I'm less than. If I'm not in school, I want to go to school. If I'm in school, I shouldn't be in school. I should be working. And I, we should all over ourselves all day long. We're just not right. So I can't do life on life's terms. I need a drink to do life on life's terms. I need a drink to breathe. I need a drink to feel. I just need a drink. But life on God's terms is simple, easy, and open to all. Agnostics tells us that. God doesn't make too hard terms for those who seek Him. Now the road there is going to be a ton of pruning, and that doesn't feel good. The removal of the self for successful living. The death of self for successful living. That doesn't feel good because the ego dies. Everything I think is me is getting challenged. In fact, who I think I am, I'm not. Who I think God is, is, isn't. Anything I come up with in my mind as to, well, this is God, it's probably not. What it is is a reflection of just me. And what we're doing is worshiping ourselves, even in prayer meditation. I don't know what God is. I can experience Him. How can I meet God? How can I pray to this God when secretly I am God? 
a footstep reveals that. I think I'm praying to God. What I'm doing is praying to me because my God endorses and, and, and condones my inappropriate behavior because it's me and I'm forgiven. It's okay. But don't you do it. It's okay for me to gossip a little bit because my God will give me an okay, but don't you gossip because you're not spiritual. My God is me. And if I'm God, I know I'm a weak and feeble God, so what I need is for you to worship me, not like me. I need you to worship me. And the only people I'm going to let into my little kingdom is the people who worship me. Don't even challenge me. Don't even critique me. And this is how we go through AA, sober living, when we're broken all over. We have a million holes in us. And then someone says, let's try the big book. Let's get someone who knows the book. Let's someone who, who's had tremendous experiences with the book. And we put the solution in front of them, and that person becomes even more angry and more disturbed. Why? Because the ego says, that just might kill me. The ego doesn't want to die. So the very thing that's going to pour life into us is the very thing we push away. We get used to being sick and suffering. We get used to our dramas. I get used to my drama. It gives me a sense of me, a sense of self. This is who I am. I have an abnormal reaction to abstinence. I don't do well. And I keep feeding the things I should kill and killing the things I should feed. I need to get soul food every day. I need to get my soul food. If not, I drink. For someone like me, if I'm not spiritually fit, I'm capable, and I'm not giving this lip service, I'm capable of doing anything on any given day if I'm not spiritually fit. The jails are full of people like us because they weren't spiritually fit, and they're way beyond a drink. I'm certainly able to pick up a drink if I'm not spiritually fit. The only way I'm here tonight with you is because of some spiritual muscles. If I'm not spiritually fit, there is no way in God's earth I'm leaving Florida. There's no way in God's earth I would get offered a job to work in Florida. I know I'd be on the Bowery, drunk, jail, or dead. Somehow I get here because of grace. The other thing is this. We get the grace of God. We all talk about that in the the grace of God, but for the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace. The grace of God is simply given something out of love. Any of us have children, we'll give them our food and go hungry. We'll give them our clothes and go cold. It's just, we, there's no thought about that. It's just grace, you're my child. That's what we get from our Creator. Here's the difference, though. We can walk around AA and just experience grace, or we can experience that power which gives us grace. And that is oneness. That's completeness. That's wholeness. And that's when the whole in the soul starts getting fixed, but not with external conditions, with God. And those folks, when we see them in AA, we just sense something's different about them as compared to the rest of the folks in the meeting. My grand sponsor would walk into a room, not say anything. His eyes would light up the room. You don't need the electricity on. His soul spoke. We get to experience that in AA, but it doesn't come by, it doesn't get to me or us by just going to an AA meeting. Meetings don't treat alcoholism. Now, that'll ruffle some feathers, and I'm not trying to ruffle feathers. It's just the way it is. It's a band-aid on an open wound. I need to be around you. In fact, I need you a lot more than you need me. You don't even need me to do this weekend. There's probably a dozen people in this room can do this weekend. I need you. I need AA. AA doesn't need me. 
But there's something about coming to this fellowship, which is a band-aid on an open wound, and we feel connectedness rather than separateness. I don't know many people in this room, but when I say I'm an alcoholic and you're an alcoholic, you already kind of know me. Okay, you're from Calgary, I'm from New Jersey, New York, South Florida. Does, does it make a difference? No. You got arrested, you, you spent the mortgage money, you cheated on the wife, you, did, you know what I mean? You made lots of attempts to quit and never quit. You're in AA completely miserable, wondering when's it going to get... It goes on and on. We know each other. So we need that. We need to be around our kind, because civilians don't get it. <laughs> civilians say, what? Just get a hobby and quit drinking. <laughs> this is the only place on the entire planet I can tell you about the most god-awful, terrible, crazy things I've done. And you say, here's my number, give me a call. Only, only, only. We have a three-legged stool they refer to AAS, the three sides of the, the, the triangle. And we're top-heavy in fellowship. And we're expecting to find utopia, as Bill said in his story. But we're going to meetings, and they feel good. They're great. Once we get kind of in there, we stop making coffee, and we know everyone, the old-timers call you over. There's this band on open wound. There's a camaraderie. There's a joyousness. There's something. We escape disaster together. Good deal. And then we hit the wall, and we're trying to get a three-legged stool to stand on one leg. It doesn't work. Not even on two. We need all three. And then I, I'm given a huge responsibility by this power called God to go save his children. Bring the sheep back to the flock. Go get my kids. They're dying. Bring them back here. I better be on with the facts because God is giving us a huge responsibility. God could have gave this message to psychiatrists, to therapists, to authors, to spiritual people, to religious people. He gave it to anyone. The greatest minds of our time, he could have said, here's 12 steps, go help them. You know what he did? He gave it to another drunk who was hopeless in the town's hospital. And then he meets Bob, Bill Dotson, and well, here, here we are. The whole spiritual life, my whole spiritual life, makes absolutely no sense. The spiritual life doesn't make sense to the thinking mind, so I stopped trying to figure it out, but we can experience it. And the guys can't deny that most of us, based on our track records, are not supposed to be here on a Friday night. But somehow we do this every day. And I'm the drunk who was totally consumed with me, all about me. Even when I was being nice to you, it was about me. I mean, I, this was my how I would operate. Let's not talk about me, let's talk about you. What do you think of me? I mean, this is how I did it. It's always about me. And it comes to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm given a big book with 12 steps, and that whole thing flips, little by slowly. And we become a direct reflection, if you will, not literally, but sort of a direct reflection of this omnipotent power, which is all love and all forgiveness, and nothing less than that. And we're given, we're given this message to get God's kids the lost sheep and bring them home. And there's many. We have them in our rooms. We don't have to even go to the bowery. We have to go to the detox. We got them dying in our rooms. But you know what happens? You approach that drunk and they're a little resistant. We say, oh, I'm not working with him anymore. And we shoot the wounded rather than not shooting the wounded. We're to carry the wounded. But we better have a message because our book says we cannot transmit something we haven't got. And sometimes we will what we do, and that's untreated alcoholism. 
I'll go to a meeting and it's really sideways and I'm following traditions. They're doing everything short of drinking. And I got to look at who the elder statesmen on the group, not the newcomers. They're doing what the, the next guy does. Huge responsibility. God has given us. Our book says we're agents for God. How am I doing with that? You judge me by, by Sunday night if I'm an agent for God or I'm a fraud, if I'm a hypocrite. Because I can be a hypocrite. I'm an alcoholic. And even if I wasn't an alcoholic, I'm still flesh and blood. I'm a hypocrite. I still have a mind that wants to be a- approval, but I can do things on the side. That's why my surrender to God is to remove the hypocrisy from my soul. So my, my Heavenly Father has brought me to a place currently, because I always like to talk about where we are currently and not replay an experience we had five or ten years ago. But where am I currently? My God has brought me to a place of prayer meditation three times a day. Now that started a handful of years ago, but that's what I'm currently doing. Sit in sacred silence and give attention to God in meditation three times a day. And it isn't some arduous task. I get to do this. Everything in recovery for me has been a get-to. I get to write inventory, I get to call a sponsor, I get to go to a meeting, I get to do this, I get to go to a doctor, I get to go to work, I get to make money, I get to save money, I get to come here this weekend. A life of invitation. How do I know what I was doing this weekend? I got an invitation. I know what I'm doing this weekend. If I wake up come Monday morning, I have an invitation to report to work. I go to work Monday morning. And that's what I do, a life of invitation. That's where God has brought me to. And for the most part, not all the time, but for the most part, mindful and present. With not being ripped apart by yesterday or what's going to happen in an hour from now. And trying to hold on to some sort of sacredness in the middle of that. That took a lot of work and a ton of uncomfortability. A lot of pruning. A good tree will bear good fruit and a sick tree won't. The gate is narrow. Easy to walk through on a wide path into a wide gate. Many of us are doing that. But if I really want to experience God and really be an agent for Him, as our book says, it's a very narrow road and a very small gate to which I'm about to walk through. That requires work and endurance. So I'm grateful where my, my, my Heavenly Father has brought me to. I have a sponsor who I speak to every Wednesday night, Mickey. I'm from Colorado. My lineage goes right back to Dr. Bob, and my job is to hold the torch up and lit. If this room was dark and I had a lamp and I put it under the table, it's useless. I need to put it on top of the table and be a beacon. That's the responsibility God has given us. On Wednesday nights, I'm on the phone with my sponsor, I have my big book, I have scripture, I have my inventory book, and we speak for about an hour. Sometimes we do the inventory, we usually do. Sometimes we'll talk about the book, life, work, scripture. And he calls me on things when he hears going sideways. And I listen like a student. Now, I'm no special drunk that's able to do that. I just have a gift of desperation that allows me to do that. Because I know what happens when I start driving, we hit a wall. I've been asked to speak many times on a Wednesday. And I call up Mickey and says, can we skip the phone call? I got an invitation to speak. And if he says no, it's no. And if he says yes, I go speak. And that might sound to newcomers, how lame is lame? 
But we need to be disciplined to the spiritual life first off, and we need a teacher to show us how to be disciplined to a spiritual life, which means I'm not going to get to do the things I want to do all the times. I get to do the things that he wants me to do. My job is not to show God that I'm practicing these principles in all my affairs, but it's to allow you to see God allowing me to practice these principles in all my affairs, to bear witness. I don't have to prove anything to God. But I need to carry his message to the sick and suffering because somehow when I do that, I get fed and I get soul food. We need to nourish the soul, feed the soul. You know, we'll spend an hour in the mirror making sure everything matches. We'll make sure we get to the gym a few times a week. Especially down in South Florida, everyone's on the beach. Everyone, you know, the guys, as soon as they hit the beach, they suck in. They walk around like this. So everyone's at the gym trying to look good, picking out the right clothes, making sure the car is nice and clean, and it goes on and on and on. And we spend about 15 seconds with God, or we pray on the way to work. If you're praying behind the wheel of the car on the way to work, stay off the road. How can I drive and talk to this power at the same time? I don't get it. And what kind of friend am I? Imagine talking to someone and you're pouring out your heart and soul and they're texting. When I'm driving to work or praying in the shower, it's conversation with God, but prayer is a sacred event. That's what I'm doing. I'm texting while God's trying to talk to me, if you will. And I'm wondering why I'm not experiencing this abundance because I got other things. Is prayer the most important event of my day or one of the 10,000 things I'm about to do today? And it's maybe fifth on the list. I'll pray. As soon as I get, you know, two packs of cigarettes in me and a half a pot of coffee, I'm going to go home, you know. This power called God is here to seek and to save, to seek and to save. And why he's seeking? Because I've been lost. And while he's saving me, because nothing will save me. And I thought I never needed anyone. Being a real man, a man's man, I don't need anyone. And how does God seek and save me? He brings me to a bottom, puts me in here, and I bring, he brings me all of you to depend on. The spiritual life doesn't make sense. God's here to seek and to save. And we have it in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I only found God in AA. I was brought up a Catholic. I walked away from that. I found God in AA. And AA's taking me back to my religious community. My favorite part of the week is 10.30 in the morning, sitting in Mass and serving. It's the greatest event of my week. Something I pushed away. I despised God for a long time. But A says, you just come to us, we'll fix you up, and we'll take you back to your religious community when the ground is fertile. Not a day shy of that. And that's exactly what happened. The sacredness of Alcoholics Anonymous. At 14 years old, I pick up my first drink with no plans to wind up as an alcoholic, although the illness was already there way before we drink. It's present. We don't just poof or alcoholic. We drink, we experience the allergy of alcoholism, the craving always being intensified, never satisfied. We have the obsession going on once we, once we take, taste the first uh, uh, drink. But the spiritual maladies has been there. I think back to when I was five and six, just different, not right, insecure, fear-based, looking for approval, isolating, all of those things. Something's not right. And by the time I hit 14, about six months or so after my mom took her life, my mom was one of us. 
Couldn't find AA. Went to psychiatrist after psychiatrist. She was an alcoholic and addicted to Valium. They gave her Valium to quit drinking. But you know what we do? It's more to marry her. And she was, we now know we can look back and say she was an extreme bipolar. Wasn't medicated properly. Had some other psych issues. So what do we people like us do when we're completely unmedicated and untreated? We take our life. And after about a half a dozen attempts, she succeeded, and I was completely lost. And I will tell you, I didn't actually verbalize the words, but deep down in here, God was a cruel prankster. I want no part of this. And off I went into a world called self-reliance. And if I'm in self-reliance, I'm in current unmanageability, which means I'm in fear and I'm agnostic. And the only thing that's going to remedy that is a drink. So my friends were drinking cold 45 beer this one night. I'm walking around with shame and embarrassment and guilt because of my mom's suicide. I was a kid on a block whose mom committed suicide. You know, you hang out on a corner, and as soon as you show up, it was like, there he is. I mean, I'm fear-based and insecure as it is, and now I got this thing, and it was about me. Until one Saturday night, my friends were drinking beer, and I put my hand in there, took a couple of pops off the court, and nothing happened. I, I thought I would get arrested. I thought my dad would turn around on the corner and jump out of the car and knock me from one end of the avenue to the other. This is a guy not to get annoyed. I always share about this. My dad makes Tony Soprano look like Tinkerbell. This guy's a tough... Yeah, he's a, uh, from a part of town, a rough part of town. He's, a, he's a, a type A personality. He's a tough guy. There was no time for tears in the house or the fireside talks. You know, like Father Knows Best for the old-timers. Remember that show? You know, your dad will sit back in his easy boy, and you'll sit down and say, Dad, tell me about life. You got cracked. And you went to work. And um, this Saturday night when I drank, I wasn't thinking about my mom. I wasn't thinking about my dad. I wasn't even me anymore. Because what I did was I took a couple of pops, nothing happened. I took a few more, took a few more, took a few more. And something indescribably wonderful happened to me. Bill says it best. I had arrived. I arrived. I was part of life at last. I had beer muscles. I got to be about 6'2", 220. I turned, that night I turned into Al Pacino. It was a great thing. <laughs> I can roughhouse with the guys. I can talk to the girls. I, I was somebody. The fear and insecurity was gone. Alcohol works on alcohol. Alcoholism. That's why I drank. Alcohol is not a problem for a long time. I mean, it was a problem, but to me it was a solution. I love the effect produced by drinking. I can function. I can feel. I'm awake. I'm in control. I'm not out of control. I like drinking. Let me, I drink, I drive better when I'm drinking. Anyone identify with that? No, I drive better when I'm drunk. Give me the keys. You know, I can talk to women when I'm drunk. I can make love when I'm drunk. I can go to the gym when I'm drunk. What I really do is absolutely nothing but drink and get drunk. And I'm only 14, by the way. I got my first load on, and I love the effect produced by alcohol. The next morning when I woke up, I remembered everything. There were no blackouts yet. There were no jail cells yet. There were no missing teeth yet. And there was no homelessness yet. Who knew? That wasn't the plan. I, I lay out from here to Vegas, everyone sitting in this room. That wasn't the plan the first time we got loaded. It was everyone else was doing it. I'll get in there. I feel good as I drink. I like this. Who planned on landing in AA at 14 when you're drinking? 
But alcohol is about other plans. Now, civilians could do the same thing and not pick up again for months or years or get drunk, but they don't land in the places I did. I do. And the trapdoors have trapdoors. So my, my uh, uh, first drunk was the innocent one. I got up the next morning. I went down to the park to play ball with the older guys. I hung out with older guys, men who knew about life. They were 16 and 17. These were my elders. So I learned about life in the schoolyard. And I, I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. And back in the day, you had to belong to what we called a crew, a corner, a hangout. You had to, otherwise you would get beat up if you didn't. Whether it was a Mickey Mouse crew or a real strong, you had to belong to a crew. That was your guys. That was your corner. You honored it one for all and all for one. And that's how I came up. And I heard the older guys talking about dating and getting cars, stealing cars, making money. How do you get into this? Where where do you sign up? You just got to be one of us. They drank, I drank. And I got, got that attaboy from them. I love this stuff. This was good because I wasn't getting anywhere else. I had the hole in the soul, and I was finally getting some sort of social acceptance. I really, I liked drinking. The following Saturday rolled around, I got drunk. The following Saturday rolled around, I got drunk. And then I got drunk on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then Thursday, Friday, and so on. Alcohol was working. I didn't know it was going to turn in its flight like a boomerang and cut me to ribbons. That's what Bill says. I started to do things that I never planned on doing. I needed money a lot. And so what I would do is take money that didn't belong for me that was lying around the house. You know, my dad would leave lots of money out. My brothers had their money, their their allowance money. And I started to take it. I mean, I would go into my dad's bedroom. He usually had his pants dress, uh, uh, draped over the bed. He carried lots of money. My dad still to this day always has a big wad of money on him. And um, I remember the lessons I got growing up. The only thing you trust is the money in your pocket, no one or nothing else. And uh, so I would go into my dad's pants pocket, take out a $20 bill, put it in my pocket, and off I went. Well, one morning I woke up, and my dad was still sleeping, and I was in a panic. I need some money. Now, I'm a young guy, and I know I need to get liquor to get through a day. And I think back, a 14, 15, 16, 17-year-old kid needing liquor to get through a day. There's something really wrong with this. But that's where many of us were. And I discovered my dad's checkbook. And I went to this dresser drawer, and I found his checkbook, and I had the idea that if I was to write out the check and forge his name, I can go down to the local store. They all knew my dad, and give it to him, and I'd make sure I'd get some money. And that's what I did. I remember the guy saying, uh, anything for your pop? Sure, here's 20 bucks. I gave him the check. I thought this check, because I did this about a half a dozen or a dozen times, I thought these checks would just vanish into the universe. <laughs> I didn't know they came back in something called checking statements. And back then, you got the whole check with the big rubber stamp on it. And uh, my dad got the mail one day, and then he came looking for me. And this is like having Robert De Niro and Goodfellas after you. This is, this is bad. And um, I was sitting in the car with this young lady in lower Manhattan. i never forget this. And my dad drove up. He got out of the car, he screamed my name, his eyebrow goes up, the cigarette goes down, you could see the pinky ring from Philadelphia, right? And uh, he called my name, it was loud. 
My dad's presence will show up a half hour before he actually arrives to give you an idea. And I was such a man's man back then. I told honey, I says, honey, that's my dad. I'm out of here. You talk to him. And I ran away. And, um, and he caught me. And I went. that's how I went to my first treatment center. My dad caught me. I cried. I blamed her. I blamed the neighborhood. I blamed mom dying and all these crocodile tears. I wore the mom a suicide right here. Asked me a question. My mom committed suicide. I cried. You cry. You get involved in my drama. And by the end of the day, the two of us are drinking. Because we love drama. I love drama. Got to have drama. Can't just be nice and tranquil. Got to create something. Something's good. Let's get some drama going. I, I don't have drama. You got drama. I'll get into your drama. If you and I don't have drama, we'll get together. We will invent drama. Let's get something going. Right? I mean, we do that. We use it as collateral almost to navigate through life. Can you, can you meet me at this meeting? Oh, no, I can't. It's the anniversary of my mom's death. Now, that sounds pretty important on the front end. How long ago did your mom die? 75 years ago. But I can't go anywhere. And, you know, just something we do. We do this stuff. We're in bondage to our past, but we use it as collateral to negotiate with people. This is why I'm sick and suffering, because I grew up in this kind of family, or this happened to me. It goes on and on and on. And my question is, how free are you because of that? Or simply, how's that working out for you? At what point do I get free? Guilt and remorse loves that. Alcoholism loves that. Despair is an extreme form of me. When I'm in a place of despair, it's an extreme form of self. It's all about me when I'm in despair. Hope will kill despair. And sometimes hope will come at the most awkward moment when we're down on our luck. Something kicks off. Hope was born out of faith, which is truly a gift of God. It's God showing his presence. Hold on, I got you. And we don't know how it's going to get better. We just know somehow, some way, I'm going to get to this. I just got to get right with God. That's faith. That's hope. It kills despair. How many of us in our meetings, we notice people walking around AA for a long time, hopeless and loaded with despair. And we offer them a solution and they push it away. Hmm? So I get into my first treatment center, and I do 28 days in treatment. And I did push-ups and sit-ups. I talked about my dysfunctional family, my triggers, my issues, my enablers. I needed a drink after treatment more than on the way into treatment. And I went right back to the same people, places, and things. i tell you something about this people, place, and things. For years, I thought it was one of those, you know... 90 meeting and 90 day kind of slogans. I didn't really put too much weight into it. But they're doing lots of studies. They have been on the brain of people like us, how we operate. They're calling it a brain disease as well. We're broken. You put me around people, places, and things, and I'm not spiritually fit. I salivate. You start talking about a war story and I'm not in a good place, I'm getting drunk. I can feel it. It just always it comes over me. You put me in a place where they're dealing powder. You put me in a bar and I'm not spiritually fitting. There's women, there's music, there's drink, and there's a lot of action. I'm starting to taste that. This whole thing t- takes me over, all released up in here. I better be spiritually fit. People like me, people like us, will deny ourselves food, water, and shelter 
in favor of a drink or a drug. This is how we operate. This is why we're not like those civilians. I would rather not pay my rent and go homeless to get a drink. I will not eat to get money for liquor. I won't drink water and hydrate myself because I need to get liquor in there. This is how I operate. This is alcoholism, the inability to see the truth. And the truth is right in front of me. So I made my second treatment center and third treatment center and fourth treatment center. And I had experiences. Now, I'm, you know, they would take us to AA meetings. They would take us to other fellowships. I made a few attempts at going to a meeting. I'd always show up to a meeting either drunk at the meeting or as soon as the meeting ended, got drunk. I've been to seven treatment centers. In my first six treatment centers, from a young guy till age 28 when God separated me from booze and, and drugs for the last time, my first six treatment centers, I managed on my own power two days of continuous sobriety. That's what I pull off. I AMH twice and brought drugs into one treatment center. I'm the type of drunk I get discharged on Monday. Monday afternoon, I'm loaded. As soon as I cross the threshold onto the street, I'm going right to the liquor store. And that's how I drink. I, there was no such thing as 90 meetings in 90 days. I don't even know where that came from or why we still offer it in AA. It has nothing to do with the solution. If you make 80 meetings in 90 days and you're sponsoring people who've been through 12 steps, great. If you make 6,000 meetings in 90 days, we're not erecting a monument for you outside our home group. And you might be more loony than the guy making his first meeting. When AA first started, we didn't have 90 meetings on the planet. But somehow that's replaced God. And we got away from the solution. So I made my third treatment center. Somewhere in there, I got a job as a dock worker uh, uh, working on a waterfront. They called us longshoremen. I was a young kid making a ton of money. And back in the day, it was the Camelot era of this union in my country. And um, you couldn't get fired. We were one of the biggest unions in the country. You cannot get fired from this job. This was the job to have. You worked really hard. The elements were tough. But a young kid making a ton of money. I mean, some men put their kids through college and bought homes on the salary. This was, this was like I hit the lottery. You cannot get fired from this job. You cannot get fired from this job. I got fired from this job. <laughs> That's a true story. I walked into work, hung over. My dad says, you're fired. Don't come back. Huh? I got into my fifth treatment center. My, my, my dad, I talk a lot about my dad sometimes. God gives me this stuff because um, I really don't have a clue what I'm going to talk about when I get here. Um, If it wasn't for the courage, strength, and direction God gave my dad, you'd have a different speaker here. And my dad made a ton of mistakes with me. Did some bad things with me. But somehow he was able to bring me from out of that pit to you. And for that, I'm blessed and grateful. My fifth treatment center, my dad decides, right around the fifth treatment center, uh, my dad gets me this apartment in, in downtown Brooklyn. little studio apartment. And he says, I'll get you this apartment. If you prove yourself, I'll get your job back. But you have to do something right. Show me you're not going to drink and, and do those drugs and save some money, uh, man up, and do all the right things. I'll get your job back. But you got to prove to me. So I, I walk into this apartment, and my dad gets me, uh, gets in, the, the whole place furnished for me. Bed, comforter, pillowcase, mattress, the whole thing. 
TV, uh, stocked the refrigerator, stocked the cabinets, bought me clothes, shoes and, 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 and new shoe, everything, brand new, pristine. Put some money on the table, and he drove away. I waited about 15, 20 minutes, and I carried a TV out on my back. And it wasn't, we didn't have flat screens back then. It was the old big TVs. And I sold it. Made about 50 bucks for it. And it started again. The shoes and boxes, the clothes and garment bags. If I could have carried the refrigerator out on my back, I would have. Because that's what I do. And I brought, like, the Bowery, if you will, into this little apartment. This, this, this uh, house I lived in was owned by this gentleman who was working, going to school. He was married, had a wife uh, with, uh, who was pregnant and a little daughter. Trying to make a life for themselves. And I terrorized them. I had all sorts of unsavory characters showing up at all hours of the night. You know how we are. Banging on a door at 3 o'clock in the morning. I owe them money, trying to give me drugs, got to sleep it off, all weird stuff. This apartment turned into the Bowery. Uh, I mean, I sleep now in, in a clean bed. My apartment's clean. I shower regularly. I pay my bills. I eat. This place... The bed had no comforter on it. There was no sheets. It was a mattress that was bloodstained and soiled that I'd pass out on. There was filthy garbage all over the place. There were Mr. Boston Blackberry brandy bottles empty and broken all over the place. I was still taking some dry goods, so the leftover of that was around, the things I used to use the dry goods, and it looked like hell. And I got thrown out of there. I spent nine weeks in my fifth treatment center. I was discharged on a Saturday and drunk on Monday, two days. And I didn't know what was wrong with me anymore. I'd been to five treatment centers. I'd been to AA, drunk, leave and get drunk. I'd been to my religious community, they prayed over me. My dad threw holy water on me. I had a priest bless me. I'd been to a psychiatrist's office. I'd been to a therapist's office. I've spoken to people, try to get life, life skills. I cannot stop drinking. And I thought God had it in for me. So I'm in uh, uh, keeping company with this young lady. Till this day, I don't know why she was with me. It was a guardian angel, really. She was a barmaid, and we were renting a room up above the bar. Real swanky joint in a place called Staten Island, New York. And I just lay in bed. I wasn't working, wasn't doing anything. And I was in a place that I drink and pass out. And one day I got the place to the place where Bill says in his story, the courage to do battle was not there. It was done. I can't do this anymore. I had the, the realization that I'm killing my family. I'm dying. My whole life has been one big mistake. I'm out. And uh, this young lady came in uh, after her shift. It was about 3 or 4 a.m. and crashed out. Now, there was no real relationship. I don't even know why she was there. Maybe to interrupt my death or something to keep me alive. I still don't know why this woman was with me, but there she was. And she dropped the purse and crashed out, and I went into her purse to steal the money she made. But what I found instead was about a half a bottle or so of Valium. And I was at peace. There is a God. And I swallowed the pills. I washed them down. I got back into bed. And I described the story a million times as a, a quiet animation, a quiet happiness. 
I wasn't giddy, but it was like, yes, I'm going to go to sleep, and it's over. I'm about 26 here. And I think of a 26-year-old kid, if you're in AA a while, you've probably buried a few 26-year-olds already. Where was I? Where's a 26-year-old kid that we want out, out for good? Because we can't do this thing called life that we've been asked to walk. I couldn't do it. And so I got back into bed, and I says, it's over. I'm going to go to sleep and not wake up. It's over. And I was actually free. I was relieved, and I had this thought. And the thought was this. Growing up, when my mom committed suicide, the belief systems we were given as a kid from my dad and my uncles was that suicide was a gender issue. Men don't do that. Women commit suicide. Women are weak, men are strong, and a Marinelli men would never do that. Mom was a woman, she was weak, she was sick, that's why she did it. So you grow up with these type of belief systems until you're attempting it yourself, and the, the realization was, this isn't a gender issue. This is what they told me in AA. This is what they told me in treatment. It would come to a place where I don't want to live anymore. That dying looks like a good way to go. And they were right. And I came too. God has interrupted my death a few times. There's a gentleman, I always hear him talk about this. We're here by inches and seconds. If we think about it. Any druggies out here, how many times have you copped and there's a raid five minutes later? There's a shooting that you just missed. The drunks driving home blind drunk and don't crash over and over and over again. I'm not sober because I want to get sober. God got me sober to do his work. And it was given me, gave me the gift of desperation to want to do this. My sobriety, my life is none of my business. I, I don't give this lip service. My life, my sobriety is none of my business. But my God allows me to participate in it as if it was he got me sober to do work for him. He's given me this life to do work for him. Puts me on a path to do his work. And very often when we come into AA, and sometimes while we're in AA, the road gets cluttered with self, wants, needs, desires. We come in here completely upside down. And the only way I keep walking forward and chopping wood and carrying water is because of the light that burns in my heart to know my creator. I look for it in the bottom of a bottle for years. i got to find utopia in the bottom of a bottle of Jack Daniels. Well, I got it a few times. Got a little lightning in a bottle a few times, but to pass. Many people need Alcoholics Anonymous. But who gets recovered? Trying to remember where I come from, that's not going to work. Trying to keep it green, that's not going to work. That's all the mind working. i got a broken mind, forget it. But it's a total gift of desperation and a daily surrender in my brokenness to God. You rescue me. You save me, you heal me, because I don't have the ability, the power, or the know-how with all the mechanics that I've learned over the years to do this, to pull this off. And so that's why every morning it's a complete surrender on the knees. Your day, not mine. My life's none of my business. If my life was my business, I'd probably be drunk by now. In a lot, somewhere else, doing what I want to do. Probably causing harm. Instead of practicing fidelity to God and fidelity with relationships. My, I was married to a woman who was drunk, who practiced.
practiced infidelity. And God gave me the ability to still practice fidelity in that broken marriage. That's not from me. That's from him. That's not because I'm special. It's just what God does. Life comes at us. Life is problematic. Life comes at us. Life seems to be unfair many times, but I don't need a drink to do life. I need God to do life, and God allows me to navigate through that, not even thinking about a drink. If I'm thinking about a drink, it's because I'm untreated in Alcoholics Anonymous. We get free of that. Step 10 promises me, guarantees me that, a position of neutrality, safe, and protected. I don't even swear to stuff off. I don't have to do it. I have to remember where I come from. I don't have to keep it green. It's a miracle. I'm, I'm safe and sober. There's booze. Here's me. What else is going on? Not there's booze. Oh, boy. I remember that. That's been removed. 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 Not working on it. Not dealing with it. Removed. When the light bulb's broken, you remove it. You put a new one in. You don't every day go, wow, look at that light bulb. And the room's dark for 10 years. I remember when it used to light up. You know. <laughs> That's what we do. I hit the streets uh, after my sixth treatment center, uh, after my fifth treatment center, and I got into my sixth treatment center for a day and a half, and I signed out AMA. I couldn't even deal with detoxing again. I couldn't deal with going to the groups again. I couldn't deal with any of it again. I mean, I remember one treatment center, they were giving us art therapy, dance therapy, music therapy, all sorts of therapy, physical therapy. They took us to a gymnasium the size of this building with one basketball and two hoops. And we had the crackheads detoxing, the junkies detoxing, the drunks detoxing. And I said, here, go play basketball. Was... I always like to share the story. We had one basketball, and the ball rolled from one end of the gym to the other. And we all stood around and said, well, I'm not getting it. You get it. You know? The crackheads went like this. I'll get the ball. Don't worry about it. I'll get the ball. The potheads went like this. Wow, man. <laughs> and so we went out and smoked a cigarette, and no one did anything. <laughs> so I'm homeless. And trapdoors have trapdoors. Now, guys, Park Avenue, Park Bench, pain is pain. God took me to that place where my nails were dug in to the edge of a cliff, and there was nowhere else to turn. That's how we got my attention. He needed my full, undivided attention and pushed me to that place. You're listening now. And interrupted my death where I surrendered June 23rd, 1988. And so I would sleep in, uh, I liked abandoned buildings in the back of hallways because the cops didn't roll you in there. I was addicted some, to non-conference non approved dry goods for a while. I had the marks on my body to prove that. I was drinking and I loved eating drink. I loved drinking eating pills. That was my thing. I was addicted to some narcotics. And after my fifth uh, treatment center, I didn't return to powder. But I could not get away from a drink. I could not get away from a drink. And when I was coming up, it was crack cocaine was the big thing. And treatment, you know, everybody in treatment was crack cocaine. They would look at me at my age. You're a drunk? Yeah, I'm a drunk. I can't stop drinking. And when I start to drink, I eat Valium. 
like they're M&Ms, and I pass out. I got to a place, by the way, when I was out there, uh, right before God got me sober. Some of you guys might know this. Well, you can't get drunk and you can't get sober. You're just drinking to breathe. You can't get there, and you know you can't sober up. I can't even commit suicide. I can't even do this right. And so I land outside the Port Authority, Midtown Manhattan, on the 9th Avenue side of Port Authority. Back in uh, the day, it was a pretty colorful area. If you were down there, you probably have to know good or homeless. I was both. And God will give us the flimsy reed. And this was pushing me to the edge of the cliff to get my attention. And I had this moment of clarity in a blind drunk. God will strike us sober. Sometimes it's our child saying, you know, Mom or Dad, why are you doing this again? Or the boss saying, i got to cut you loose. Or the handcuffs go on again. Whatever it is, God will send his angels in. And sometimes he'll just get you alone like he did with me. And I had this moment of clarity of what my life turned into. It was awful. It wasn't even a life. It was a daily existence and trying to maintain myself from crawling out of my skin by putting a drink in there. And I thought of my entire family as if it passed before my eyes. This happened in a flash. But I do remember cursing God for doing this to me. God was evil. And he had me in his crosshairs. And I didn't know, I was actually having this dialogue, what did I do to you? I didn't ask for this. God had great work for me to do. He just had to get me ready for it. I can see that now at the time I couldn't. And I lingered a little bit long. I don't know how I, how I showed up at the Port Authority, by the way, till this day, over, well over 26 years ago. Um, and I don't know what happened to me after this moment by the Port Authority. But I do recall what happened shortly afterwards and June 23rd, 1988 showed up because that wasn't the day I decided to quit drinking. I tried quitting many days only to be drunk. But June 23rd is another day coming to in another filthy hallway in the same clothes that I had been wearing forever. I was, I, was, I was dirty. I was sick and suffering. If I lived to be 100, I'll never be as old as the day I walked in here. I had some internal problems. I was urinating blood. I had black eyes. My gums were bleeding. I weigh about 190 now. I was 130 right around there. If you can imagine what that looks like. I was dying, like many of us. And I came to another day of horror. I got to hustle up some money. I need a drink. There's no debating anymore. you got to get a drink in me here. And uh, something happened. I didn't want to die anymore. Now, that came from someplace else. I did not want to die. And I remember, if you're out there screaming, if you're out there, please take me from this. I don't want to die. I didn't say, take me to AA, get me sober so she doesn't leave me, get me sober, I'm going to lose my job if I don't. There were no more bargaining chips. Everything was removed. This is what God does. He removed everything. There was nothing. Me and a hallway and a, and a, and a drink. That's it. Lost contact with the family. There were no relationships. There was no money. There was nothing. God blessed me with that to get me completely out of the way, if you will, so I can hold on to the gift of desperation. That's an awful moment, yet it's a great moment. How dark it is before the dawn, Bill says. And what I got was the thunder of silence. Enough, I have other work for you to do. 
This I got in this ear, my left ear. It was if someone leaned over and whispered, enough, I have other work for you to do. It was that clear. But the problem was I didn't know what it meant, and I thought I lost my mind. I never heard this. It was as somebody leaned over. It's really hard to describe adequately to you, but if you've had these experiences, you know what I'm talking about. It wasn't, well, I think this is God. This was someone talking to me here, and I said, I lost my mind. They told me about this too. I'm going to be a wet brain, and I panicked. What I have found out, I was out of my mind that day. And what I pray is that I never return back to my mind ever again. It is the problem maker. It is the troublemaker. My solution today becomes tomorrow's problem is from my mind. In fact, my goal this weekend is everyone goes home and leaves your mind here. You don't need it. We don't need it. It also, if you think from last night to right now, how many good things did your mind feed you? How many spiritual things did your mind feed you? But yet we return to the mind because it's my mind, therefore it's good. Your mind's sick, but my mind's mind must be good. I'm special. I was surrendered like many of us. We get surrendered. We say we surrendered. We were surrendered. We were rescued, taken from the scrap heap and put on this path to be a journeyman. And off I went to my seven treatment center, and um, they sent me out to Minnesota from Long Island, New York. And uh, I was brought home about a year later, and I've been chopping wood and carrying water. How am I doing on time? I'm good? Okay. That means the speaker likes me. Sometimes they say, you got to go, cut. You know? <laughs> I mean, the taper, I should say. I was in treatment for 10 days. And uh, after all of this, I'm in a place in uh, Amityville, Long Island, where I had been to six times prior in New York. Really nice place. And how I got in there was a, a whole God story. But I'm in there 10 days, and the insidious insanity of the first drink is galloping back. It's telling me, Pete, if you can get a drink in you, you can go to group. Settle your stomach. Stop the sweating. You'll have an appetite. You can participate. You can go to all the therapies they're often. You just need to get a little drinky-poo in you to settle things down. This is why I can't do life on life's terms. I need a drink to go to treatment. <laughs> I need a drink to go to group to figure out how not to not, not drink. Anyone ever do this? Get a pint, go home, or go to the bar and get a drink to figure out how we're not going to drink anymore? I did this. That didn't happen. They sent me out to Minnesota. I went to more treatment. I did something called a halfway, three-quarter, and sober house. And I was brought to a meeting called the Three Legacies Meeting. Three, four hundred people on a Friday night. Everyone who got to the podium, including the trusted servants, were dressed in suits, men and women. I never saw anything like this. I'm used to a different character. They were happy. They talked about God, the 12 steps in the book. They talked about the importance of a relationship with God. Even though it scared me, I wanted what they had to offer. They were impeccable. How many meetings did we go to and the speaker looks like they're going to commit a felony as soon as the meeting's over? <laughs> How many meetings did we go to and you're, they're texting right in front of you while you're pouring out your heart and soul? Texting became more important than a meeting in God. We text now at meetings. These people didn't do that. They were on, there were cell phones in 1988. They looked impeccable. They were looking for the newcomer. They were looking. They were standing at the door. There's a great book that says called Stand by the Door. If you get a hold of it, read it. 
standing by the door. Who's new? Who are we going to bring in? What old timer doesn't look right tonight? They looked impeccable, and they tell the, they told their stories. And I forget one night, a man got up to the podium. I was pinned against the back wall because I was so afraid. And this guy, if anyone has seen pictures of Sigmund Freud, that's what this man looked like, bow tie and all. He gets up to the podium, and my alcoholic ego says, Oh, no. I'm going to listen to this old coot, Sigmund Freud, for an hour. I never saw this man again. I wept against the wall because this old-timer lived my life only was in the Midwest. He said things that I said, God put him up there to talk to me tonight. And when we come around long enough, we will hear our story, and it might be by someone we don't uh, expect to tell our story. I knew I was home. My family, little by slow, has been put back together because of the sacred fellowship called Al-Anon and some outside help. And I've been able to go back and heal and repair and do all the things we're asked to do as members of Alcoholics Anonymous and follow the directions, not suggestions, but directions of our elders when it comes to getting recovered. And the same person, me, who was driven to go drink and cause harm is moved to go back and give. I'm not special. It's just the Spirit is. The Spirit has power. We get to experience oneness with this power, not separateness. And I'll close with this story. If you're around long enough and you're doing the spiritual work, you'll get things happen to you that you cannot explain from a podium. We try to create, we try to tell a story. But if I went to Niagara Falls and brought back little photos and you've never been to Niagara Falls, you get an idea, but until you go to Niagara Falls, you really don't know what it's like. But we get these God shots and we get these angels that show up. I always was suspect of this until I've gotten a whole bunch of them. Well, not too long ago, Mary and I were headed to uh, uh, Stockholm. Uh, She was a speaker, I was a speaker and doing a workshop. And I've been there before. A lot of fun going out there. Beautiful country. Folks there are tremendous. And I was excited to go and see some old friends, some newfound friends, and do this. And we leave Fort Lauderdale Airport, and we get to the infamous Newark, New Jersey Airport. Now, you will test how spiritual you are if you spend about 20 minutes in Newark Airport. This is not exactly the training ground for spiritual growth. Everyone's angry for no reason. And uh, I get to Newark Airport, and uh, I got to go to the international section, and uh, there's no one at the gate, and uh, I'm not sure if the flight's delayed because it was sinuses delayed, and everything's upside down. It's hot, the air condition is broken, and I'm starting to wonder, why am I doing this? And I'm feeding in to the rudeness of some of the folks there. I'm in the international airport. Not a lot of folks are speaking English. So I'm like this lost person, the two of us. And my mind says, tell me, why are you doing this, man? All the way to Stockholm, it's an eight, nine-hour flight to get there. Jet lag. And just go, I could be on the beach right now. All the stuff's coming to me. And I'm getting uncomfortable. I'm not saying anything yet. I said, i got to talk to, talk to Marion. Let her know I'm, I'm not feeling too good right now. She turns around, she says, I'm not feeling too good right now. This is really intimidating. She never did uh, a conference. She's never been to Europe, let alone do a conference in Europe. So two of us got the mind kicked in gear. So what do we do? She says, let's pray. 
So right in the middle of the terminal, we held hands, closed our eyes. We've done it a million times. We stopped praying. And we're praying a piece uh, from favorite part of Scripture. Praying. We open our eyes after the prayer. And there's a woman standing not five feet from us, smiling. And she says, it's so nice to see people praying in public. Now, I don't know about your country. My country, suddenly, praying in God is a bad thing. I don't know how to start it, but that's what... Right? So she said this. And she introduced herself. And as we got to talking, she has half a family in AA, the other half's in Al-Anon. And she's... Um, oh, I forget what she does. She goes and feeds the homeless, and um, she does this really good charitable work. I forget what it's called. Her husband. And she was going back to Stockholm to see her dying dad. And we started to talk, and we had a lot in common about prayer, power of prayer. She knew about AA and Al-Anon, and we're starting to breathe again, starting to feel connected. And she says, what were you praying? So Marion told her the scripture we were praying. She says, oh, my God, she's not going to believe this. But I have this bangle, she said, on my dresser. It's been sitting there forever. Something told me to bring it. I put it in my purse. And she says, when you see it, you're going to love it. And it was the scripture, a line from the scripture. She says, now I know I had to bring it. So the two women start crying. And they're hugging, and we're talking, and now I'm ready to go to Stockholm. My purpose is, is clear again. Why I'm going, what I'm supposed to be doing, doing his work, this is great, and we're right. And oh, I got this life, God's, God's breath into me again. And we head off on the plane, and we said, where are you sitting? We'll talk on a plane. It's just something like 32F. Okay, great. We'll see you as soon as we get on the plane. Okay. We see her board the plane. It's a true story. We take off. The bell goes up about 10,000 feet in the air. Marion gets up to go look for this woman. I looked up this woman's name. It means gift from God, by the way. We can't find her. So Marion takes another trip. I go take a trip. Now you know how we are, alcoholics. We're looking in overheads, <laughs> under tables. You know, we're upsetting the plane. This woman vanished. We land in Stockholm. Now we're on a mission. We're standing at the, as a plane. We're like this. We, doesn't get off the plane. Gone. I... You can interpret that the way you want to, but this has happened to me, and I've spoken to many folks. It happens to us. God sends in an angel, her name and gift from God, the script, the whole thing. We had a wonderful conference in Stockholm. That woman, that angel, is still with both of us today. It was that tangible. God is very visible. God is very tangible. God is very much alive. God hears the heart and the soul when it hurts. And feeds it. You just have to ask. And trust that it will be delivered. Mustard seed of willingness will move a mountain. He literally meant it would move. I need a mustard seed of willingness, a little bit of willingness to get recovered. Because God's pursuing me and God's pursuing everyone in this room right now, including the drunk under a bridge right now, pursuing us to seek and to save. And all to do is surrender. He loves that. And we get rescued. We get recovered and we go out and bring more back. And we have what we call our sacred rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, huh? That's all I got. Peace. Yeah.